You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I am elated to bring you the great and one and only Johnny Bowden. Johnny Bowden is OG functional nutrition in my mind, and much of my knowledge came from reading his books over the past 20 plus years. I was so excited to get to sit down and talk with him. I even had a fangirl moment there for a minute. We talked about his book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, where we dove deep into the fallacies around our understanding of cholesterol, testing of cholesterol, misdiagnosing of cholesterol syndromes, as well as statin drug prescribing, the problems inherent there. And we talked about fats, healthy fats versus bad fats, seed oils, the questions you guys have been asking me, and so much more. We had a lot of fun on this episode. I hope he comes back soon. And I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did recording it. Let's jump in. Johnny Bowden, I'm so excited to have you here on the Dr. Tina show. I am a longtime fan and I I was fangirling out last night with my producer because I was so excited to talk to you. Would you introduce the audi- or yourself to the audience? You have a long history in nutrition and I want you to do it justice. <laughs> Um, I, I was I was sort of dreading when you said you've been a fan. The, the last person who said that said, I've been reading you ever since I was in school and working in, in GNC. And I thought, okay, you're basically saying, <laughs> it's like, you're really old. I've been <laughs> That's okay. No, wise. You're wise. Thank you. Um, I'm a board certified nutritionist and a kind of a, a truth to power kind of guy. That my, my tagline is called the Nutrition Mythbuster. And I guess ever since I started in 1990, I've been up against the establishment and arguing with doctors and 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 you know the what I call the medical industrial complex. So I, I tend to have some contrarian views. I've written 15 books, three of which were kind of bestsellers. One of which is the Great Cholesterol Myth, which is I guess what I'm best known for, and also. The 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth and Living Low Carb, which is kind of was kind of my first breakout book. It's when I uh, kind of surveyed the entire low carb landscape. There were 38 different low carb diets at the time that the first edition came out in 2004. And I reviewed all of them. I gave them stars and I said who I thought they were good for. And so I've been doing that kind of stuff for a long time. Um, and uh, the rest of what I do is basically YouTube videos. And I, I have a membership site that I record content for. And I write a column for Whole Foods magazine and um, just basically annoy the medical establishment with my questions and, and views on things. Um, and that's pretty much what I do. I love it. Well, I try to do the same. So <laughs> we are kindred spirits. Indeed. Yes. I, I think bucking the system and... You know, but when the system is nuts, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am an adamant truth teller, at least the truth as I know it. So I keep, I keep trying to hold that line, and it's people like you that I really have looked up to over the years. Thank so. you so much. And by yes. the way, can I just say, in case anyone is getting the completely false idea that I think I have the truth and you should listen to me because I can correct them, I, I wrote an article once for my blog called um, "I Am Not Your Girl," and and I believe very, very strongly that none of us have the truth. We're all seeking, we're all asking questions and anybody who pretends to have the truth, so like a girl and says, follow me, I've got the way, you should probably run the other way from. In, in graduate school, my favorite book, I, I sometimes show it in slide presentations, is um, if you meet the, the Buddha on the road, kill him. 
Ah. By, by a psychologist named Sheldon Kopp. And basically that was the theory. If, if somebody presents themselves as the, the guru, the truth teller, be cautious. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I'm why I always... Speaker and and I'm, I'm smart enough to know that a lot of what we're hearing is BS, but I'm certainly not the uh, the keeper of the truth. I, like you, are you know on the same journey you are, which is to try to make sense out of a lot of very contradictory, agenda-driven information. Well, it's a confusing landscape. And I on my social media, I get questions often of like, I just don't know what to believe. And I, I try to direct people as best I can to the truth as I know it. But also, you know, having your instincts on and ga- being an information gatherer and a truth seeker is, I think that's been in my cell since I was a, a child. You know, I always wanted to know why, why, why. And I, I think that we're, we're missing common sense these days and nutrition has gotten so convoluted and, and so confusing for people. They, they, you know, it used to just be, you know, low carb and now it's, is it keto? Is it carnivore? Is it this? Is it that? And I just want to try to bring some clarity for people. Your book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, I know you've written others and I've read them, but that book in particular, I was so excited for because I had learned in school and I I understood well that cholesterol was not the enemy. This was prior to it even coming out in the literature for, for, you know, in a a little more direct way. And that book was so great because I could hand it to patients because when they would come into my office and I would, you know, I'd, I'd just say like, the cholesterol is not the enemy, and you could see their the lobes of their brain fight <laughs> each oh, other. So to this day, yeah, yeah, yeah. So can we talk about that a little bit? I know that's a huge subject, but partic- particularly the omega sixes, the fats. Fat is our friend, not our enemy. If we're eating healthy fats, the advent of statins and just the how that's worked out. That's what I'd really love to dive into today. Sure. Uh, now that story has been told even better than me. Um, And I want to give a shout out because these books are so great. The Big Fat Lie, Nina Teichel's book is just, it's history in the making. It's fantastic. It tells you exactly how we got in this predicament. We talk about it in The Great Cholesterol Myth. Gary Taubes, The Great Gary Taubes, huge book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and How We Get Fat. I'm plugging other authors' books on on your show. But but this this history that if we get into it with Ansel Keys and how the country got on the low-fat kick and how the committees in the 80s came out with, you know, standards and said we should cut out saturated fat, we shouldn't eat cholesterol. It's a very interesting story. Uh, It's kind of, I assume we're going to have a similar story about the COVID-19 virus 50 years from now, and we'll be looking at ourselves and going, what were they saying? What were they, what are you, what? And that's kind of what we say now, what I say now, when I look at what they were talking about, about low-fat diets and, and extending life by eliminating saturated fat and cholesterol. All this stuff's been debunked and debunked and debunked. But the debunking, you know, it's like retractions in the newspaper. About 10% of the people who read the original story, which was full of BS, read the retraction, about 10% of them. And it comes late and people don't pay attention to it. So we've been shouting about this Research showing that saturated fat is not the culprit, that cholesterol isn't the culprit. And most importantly to me, it's not, it's such a double whammy because not only does cholesterol as we know it not cause heart disease, we are measuring it in a completely antiquated way that gives us no valuable information. 
Cholesterol actually does play a role in heart disease, but not the way we think and not measured the way we're measuring it. It's just a completely different role. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've been focusing on on book tours and, and, and interviews like this is to get people to understand the real cause of heart disease, or at least the bigger cause of heart disease, number one. And number two, I would love to encourage an activist movement of people going to their doctors and refusing to take a prescription based on HDL, LDL, and insisting on the modern cholesterol test. Now, that is a test that actually gives you valuable information about cholesterol. But the one that we're all sold on, the good and bad one, came from the 60s, and it's the equivalent of using a Commodore 64 computer in today's world of technology. It's a, it's a equivalent to if you're a video game player playing Miss Pac-Man <laughs> when, when, you, when you've got whatever they have now. Uh, it, it's just, it's an old-fashioned way that has long been past its expiration date. And so the, the whole idea that cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease is kind of a two-pronged thing. One is cholesterol, as you know it, isn't even cholesterol. It's not even what we're, import, what we're interested in. And number two, yes, it doesn't cause cholesterol. It doesn't cause heart disease. So I, that's a chunk for people to understand. And, and um, I'd be happy to, to break it down. Yeah, to jump, in, jump in there, because that's that seems to be the the wall that I hit up against with people. I'll even show them graphs, you know, like as cholesterol goes up, mortality goes down. You know, there's that, it's low cholesterol that I think is so dangerous on these labs. So anyway, yeah. Well, to your point, before we even go into the other thing, I just want to accentuate your point. In the Framingham study, which is probably the oldest study of uh, heart disease ever. I think it started in the 40s. It's still going on. People in Framingham, Massachusetts, they've covered their, their grandchildren, you know, their, their sons, daughters, grandchildren. They're into the, I don't know what generation, maybe the fourth generation by now. And they just look at cost. One of the, one of the things they've looked at over the decades is the relationship between aging or dying and, and what age you diet and, and what your cholesterol is. And it's pretty clear that the people with the highest cholesterol live the longest. Um, and that's a finding that, you know, just drives the establishment crazy. So they don't talk about it very much, but, uh, but that, that is in the literature. As you get older, high cholesterol is more protective than it isn't. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to keep using cholesterol the way we, I've got to explain what cholesterol is and why this cockamamie measurement is the wrong way to look at it. Um, so when I was a kid, before you were born, <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to, we used to have what they called health fairs, neighborhood health fairs. And you'd go and you'd walk around, you'd learn all these things about health. Health was not on in every magazine in the country. It was not, you couldn't, it wasn't plastered all over the supermarket with keto this and intermittent fasting. These people just didn't know about health. There, there, there was no Whole Foods. There was like a little health food store. And the people who went there were called health nuts. Hmm. Okay. So, We'd go in for this test and they would explain the four food groups and they would have a little booze and there'd be a guy. It would always be a guy because doctors were all guys and right. And they'd be in a white lab coat and they'd do a fingerprint and say, would you like some, would you like to find out what your cholesterol is? Of course, this is something that people are just hearing about. And Eisenhower had died of a heart attack. So they're talking about things like cholesterol. Here was a way to find it out. And they do a little thumbprint and they gave you a single number. 
And they'd say things like, oh, Mrs. Jones, your cholesterol is 210. That's a good job. Keep doing what you're doing. That's great. And people would become aware that this number of cholesterol might have something to do with something they care about, like the quality of their life or when they die. Um, and the numbers were, you know, they'd say, oh, 240. And by the way, I'm making, I'm saying these numbers intentionally because that was the standard then. The drug companies have dumbed down that standard every single chance they get every time. And every time they get it down from 240 to 230 to 220 as the standard, they pick up another 10 million statin patients. So they've been getting it down and down. Now it's at 200, the total number. Um, but it was, then it was 240. And they would give you this single number. In the early 60s or so, when microscopes got better and when they started looking a little more deeply at how cholesterol manages to get wherever it gets in the body, they realized, you know, it can't travel in the bloodstream because it's what's called hydrophobic. It doesn't mix. With, it's like oil and water. It doesn't mix with water. It has to be carried in a container. And actually, they said to themselves, the contain they're not all the same. There's like two different kinds of containers, it seems. One has a higher density, which means if you put it in, in a liquid, it floats to the bottom. I mean, it goes to the bottom, it's dense. The other one has a lower density. If you put it in the same water, it'll kind of float. Let's give them, and, and these, these boats, these containers that hold the cholesterol are called lipoproteins. That's the L in HDL and LDL, right? High density lipoprotein, that's the boat. Low density lipoprotein, that's the boat. And they carry cholesterol. These are the two kinds of boats. So they said, let's not just do total cholesterol. Let's measure the, the, the cholesterol in the um, high density ones and the cholesterol in the low-density ones. Well, and we'll call, I don't know, they do different things. Let's call one of them good and one of them bad. This is like 1963, right? They haven't moved since then. Yeah. We now have something called magnetic resonance imaging. We have all kinds of ways of looking into, this, into things that we did not have back then. And we now know that we can identify 13 different subfractions of cholesterol. 13, not two. And they behave differently in the body. Moreover, depending on their size, they are less or more dangerous. The big fluffy ones are like if you've got a tennis net, you think of that as your artery lining. You throw a soft, one of those soft balls that you throw a dog that, you know, you can, they're very, it's not doing any damage to the tennis net. It can't get through, even if you threw it hard. Take a, a thing half the size of a golf ball that's all inflamed and you throw it into the net, it may go through the net or it may break some of the, the uh, grating. Mm -hmm. They're very, very, very different. Good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, it doesn't tell you any of that. So the concept to walk away from here is that the lipoprotein is the boat, cholesterol is the cargo. It's carried by the lipoprotein. But what we have learned in the last, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, is that the action, the thing you want to know about, is not the cargo so much, it's the boat. Mm -hmm. Why? Very simple. If you're a bouncer in a bar, 
What do you care more about? How many handkerchiefs are in the pockets of the patrons? Or how many patrons are in my bar? Now, here's why you care about how many patrons are in your bar. Because the more patrons that are in there, even if they're the nicest people in the world and nobody means anyone harm, the, you get you crowd enough thousands of people into one space, somebody's going to step on someone else's toe. Someone's going to get mad. Someone's going to spill a drink. A fight's going to break out. Much more likely if you've got 2,000 people than if you've got 20. The people in the bar are the boats. They're the lipoproteins. We keep looking at, can I see what's in your pocket? How many, uh, how many coins do you have? Or how many? That's not what's causing heart disease. What's causing heart disease is these lipoproteins are getting caught in spaces they don't belong in. They're getting inflamed. They're beginning to cause plaque. And it isn't the cholesterol that's contained in them. It's the lipoproteins. So we now have tests, cholesterol tests, that tell you, how many lipoproteins you've got. That number actually does predict heart disease. Mm -hmm. So if you had a modern cholesterol test and you looked at your particle number, it's called particles because lipoproteins are called particles. And um, if you looked at the total number of particles, that's going to give you a very important metric. Not only that, these new tests also look at the size of the particles. So if you have what's called pattern uh, A, that means most of them are like the big fluffy softballs and they just don't do much damage. But if you have pattern B, that means most of them are the nasty ones. And that mm -hmm. can really cause some suffering. So we're not even looking, except for people like you and me and the people who come to us and the people who talk to us and other functional medicine physicians and nutritionists and naturopaths, except for them, the entire world is still measuring using the, the equivalent of the cosmopolitan um, astrology. I call it cholesterol astrology. <laughs> when people tell me, oh, my cholesterol is good or my cholesterol is bad or my doc says, I said, no, he, <laughs> your doc didn't measure it. This is a, a year, and it's the hardest concept I've ever had to teach anyone. And no one, it's very hard for them to get it. They, we are so in, in, we've got that so in, that indoctrination on good and bad cholesterol being a measure of our heart health. And it's so embedded in our subconscious that it is so difficult to dislodge that. And yet, it's the particles, it's the boats, it's not the cargo that we need to be concerned about when we're looking at cholesterol. I use an example, Tina, that uh, I live in California. So California, we have emissions, lots of emissions, stringent emission rules. And our cars, if they're over three years old or four years old, whatever it is, um, every you, you get a thing from the Department of Motor Vehicle, you have to have your car smog tested. So you go to an emissions station, an authorized emissions station, which can't be the same place that repairs it. So they want to keep it really, you know, and you have to have it smog checked and they check for all these chemicals. And if you pass, great. And if you don't pass, they tell you, well, Mr. Jones, you got to get this done and that done. It's going to cost you $1,200 and nobody likes it. But we all want to be good citizens. And plus the fact we can't drive the car if it's not got the smog certification on it. So we go and we do it. What if you found out, I say to my California neighbors, that that smog testing machine that you've been going to since you bought a car, since you've been old enough to drive, that you've got to go to every few years and then pay for the repairs depending on what the diagnosis is. What if you found out that that machine hasn't been calibrated 
in 63 years. And in fact, let's go a little further, the environmental pollutants that it's testing for, half of them weren't even invented when that test, when that machine was built. And it's therefore giving you false negatives for all the the chemicals that it doesn't even know how to recognize. And it may be giving you false positives for some of the others because the damn thing hasn't been calibrated since 1960s. That's what we've got here. We're going to get our cars tuned up with a machine that doesn't, that doesn't know that that is long since past its retirement age. And that's, well, it sells a lot of statin drugs. <laughs> yes, and that's, this, a, that's this. a whole other story. And, and the, thing, <laughs> the thing about this is that all statin prescriptions, not all, because not all, 99% of statin prescriptions, people who are listening to this and who are on statins, the overwhelming likelihood is that it was prescribed based on a dysfunctional test. Yes. I don't have a problem with a statin drug that was prescribed to someone who has hugely high particles with very small particle size. Statins might be helpful for a person like that. Most people who are on them have no idea if they fit into that category. And not only are we being over-prescribed statins because they're only looking at LDL when there's LDL2 and LDL3, LDL-A, LDL-B, oxidized LDL, lipoprotein little a, there's a dozen different LDLs, right? Not only they're not looking at that, but the if you had a very high LDL by the conventional standards, your doctor would put you on a statin like that. But if you looked under the hood, like I'm suggesting you do with the new tests, you might find that of, of that high LDL, 98% of it was the big fluffy squeeze balls that don't do any harm. Whereas somebody who had low LDL, me, I'm going to tell you in a minute, low LDL, doctors are thrilled. It's all the nasty little A particles, the mm. ones that actually cause inflammation and plaque your doctor wouldn't even know it because they didn't look under the hood. I was one of those people who were underprescribed, and I'm not saying I, I should be on a statin, but I would be in the treatment category. My regular BS cholesterol test, HDL, LDL, was flawless for my entire adult life. Flawless. They said, oh, I don't know what you're doing, Mr. Bowden, but this is great. You're, you know, and then the new tests came out and I, I got religion and said, wait a what am I doing with this? And I got the new one and it turns out I have a very high particle and a very small particle size. Mm. I am a candidate for satin drugs, would never have seen it if we kept looking at this hokey BS good and bad cholesterol test. Yeah, those are, those are critical tests and most people don't know where to find them or how to ask for them. Or like you said, their doctor will argue with them about it or tell them it's not necessary because they don't think the doctors know about them. They're not familiar with them. They don't know how to read them or interpret them. And so you're right. We, oh, we true, end up but it's with not massive... true that they're hard to find because at this point now, Quest and LabCorp, which mm-hmm. are the two biggest labs in the country that do the majority of testing for everybody who gets a blood test, both of them have this test. And what would a patient ask for? The particle test. That's the generic way. They have all different names for them. The cardio IQ test, the advanced lipid profiling, the, uh, the, the NMR particle test. There's lots of different names. It doesn't matter. They are all particle tests. They are all looking at the total number of LDLs you have and the size. Yes. 
Yes. And this is important information that I think everyone should have. Do you have an age where you suggest people start looking for this? Absolutely not. I mean, you can, you want to, any, anybody who is at an age where the doctor thinks you should get your cholesterol measured should measure it this way. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially if someone's been prescribed a statin, I usually encourage a particle test because I, like you said, I, there's just so many drawbacks to statins if you don't need them. And the you data- don't need them if you and I, you know, we, we were my my co-author on Great Cholesterol Myth, cardiologist Stephen Sinatra and I. We we have been rolled over the coals by every medical group you can imagine, and we often say we're not anti. Statin, we're anti-overprescription of statin. We're anti-putting them in the water supply and giving them to everybody who's total cholesterol, which, God, I can't even believe they're even looking at those numbers anymore. When when those numbers go up, they just hand out the statin, and it's become the standard of care, and people are afraid to not even give it, even if they suspect this might be idiotic, they, they will still give it because they don't want to be sued. So it is so baked into our, our whole system that... Um, it just it will take a lot of people like you and me and, and, and talking, and most people won't respond, but some will. And mm-hmm. slowly but surely, this information will get out there. And, and you know, when I, it's so funny that uh, I, I'm in a group, I mean, I have a lot of contacts with really with wonderful doctors like you, with, you know, people that you wouldn't normally have access to. And when I got my particle test done, I went, I went over three, three guys from Specialty Health in Nevada who are in my little group of um, my brain trust of people that I trust to go over stuff. And they're looking at all the numbers and they literally, they go, okay, total cholesterol, we don't give a shit about that. LDL, HDL, nonsense. Okay, now here's the numbers that we were worried about. Particle number, particle size, inflammatory markers. They don't even bother to discuss total LDL and HDL. And something that I don't think most people realize is that your hormones are made out of cholesterol. And as we age and our hormones decline naturally, our cholesterol is going to go up in response to meet that need. And so we live in a society where we medicate that away. So we are causing not only significant hormonal decline, which of course circles back and leads to further exacerbation of what you just were talking about, particle size. And we end up with dementia and other issues because our brains are made out of cholesterol and fat. We end up with diabetes that clinically, statin drugs do have been shown to lead to a pretty difficult to reverse type of diabetes. Um, I've most notably seen it as presenting because my whole practice as a chiropractor and an ND was musculoskeletal stuff. So I was seeing a lot of joint pain, a lot of muscle pain, musculoskeletal pain that was just resolved by removing the statin, cleaning up the lifestyle changing things around. The data on statin use, I mean, basically, from what I understand, other than the situation you just described, really, the only people otherwise that seem to benefit from it are males who've already had a heart attack. Middle-aged men with a previous heart attack are the population on which they were studied. They continue to try to tease some data out of there, and they squint and, and just crunch that data to try to show, no, women are helped also. Older people are helped also. Uh, we can prevent it with this, but it's really, really, really thin data. The, the data that is promising is, and it's a modest benefit. It's not a life-saving benefit. A modest benefit in middle-aged men with previous heart, atta- with previous heart conditions. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the group. Yep. 
And it's working, it seems to be working more on a mechanism of being an anti-inflammatory, like making things slickery versus the actual lowering of cholesterol, correct? Not only correct, but Ufi Rasnikov, who is kind of the father of the anti-cholesterol, of, of the cholesterol skeptic movement from the 80s, genius MD, PhD, used to say cholesterol drugs would be a hell of a lot better if they didn't lower cholesterol. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he meant, Tina. Yeah. Yeah. They're mildly anti-inflammatory. They're mildly anti-platelet um, clumping. You know, they, they have a couple of little things. I, my personal view of that is you could do every one of those with fish oil with no side effects. But yes, they do do a couple of little mild, uh, you know, they're mildly anti-inflammatory. This country is suffering from a epidemic of infl inflammation. So anything you could do to lower inflammation a little would be positive. Um, but I think you can do it better without the statin. Yeah. I found it to dull my patient's cognition and their wit. And when they got off the of memory, it. Memory loss is number one. Muscle pain is number two. Libido is number three. Yeah. Uh, and joint pain. They, these are the four top side effects. And they have done such a good job of marketing that that the doctors don't believe their patients when they say these things. And mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to quote a study to you that, that Maybe your listeners can look up and, and Beatrice Gold, Goldblum, uh, Gottlieb at Stanford did a study of statin side effects. It is, it is the most quoted study in the literature. And she found that about 65% of side effects were not reported by doctors to the adverse reporting agency. And the number one reason for that was that the doctors didn't believe their patients. So what you would have is, and I play tennis with a lot of these guys, you know, in their 70s and 80s, and they all, they all com confirmed this kind of experience I'm about to tell you. The doctor, the, the patient would go into the doctor and say, you know, doc, I, I've been forgetting my wife's name ever since you gave me this Crestor. He says, oh no, it's not the Crestor. It's a little bit of mild cognitive impairment. Mr. Jones, you're getting older, it's to be expected. They'd come in and go, I don't know, I was playing tennis great. Now I got this, my knees hurt all the time. And it's something, it's not the statin. It's you're getting older. There's a little bit of mild arthritis. And they just explain, and, and, and the reason they do this, they're not bad people. They have been so marketed by the pharmaceutical reps who come in and tell them this shit. Yeah. And that they actually think, oh, yeah, they think it's the Crestor. They think it's the Lipitor, but it's not. It's my, look, we have study. Look, we have graphs. But in fact, those are the most common symptoms. And as I've always said, if I had a rare cancer and my only chance of getting well was to try an experimental drug with a list of side effects like statins, I'd, I'd be online for that drug because the choice is I might die. But statins don't save lives. Right. They're being given for a lab value that's being wrongly measured to begin with. There's, there's, what's the upside? You're not, you're not taking an experimental drug that, look, I know there's some side effects, but look, you might, it might save your life or extend your, <laughs> extend your life. That's not what's happening here. Mm -hmm. so, so it's even more mind-boggling. Um, and, and you mentioned the sex hormones. One thing that I always get some success with my male um, clients so when I was in private practice that I would get success with male clients in trying to explain this was all you had to do was point out that cholesterol is the parent molecule for the sex hormones. Now, mm -hmm. 
This is a hypothesis unsupported by science. I don't think it's ever been studied, but I will present it to you and it's for what it's worth. I don't think it's an accident that half the men in America that are on statin drugs were also on erectile dysfunction medications. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think there is some connection there and I would love it if somebody would do a study on it, but it stops, the, it, it, the, the statin drugs stop production in the body of cholesterol and cholesterol is the parent molecule for your sex hormones and for vitamin D, by the way, another vit a, a, a vitamin or a nutrient that is widely deficient in, in, in America. So I think there's a connection to all that. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you. You know, Big Daddy Pharma has got to turn a dollar. <laughs> and, and then I think it, 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 it's important to not just say to people in general, yes, cholesterol is the wrong thing to be looking at. We need to tell them what the right thing is. Mm -hmm. And I think when we did the revised edition of The Great Cholesterol Myth, which came out in 2021, we had, we had a few years in between the original edition and the revised edition to really delve in to research and to see what did predict cholesterol, what did predict heart disease. And, and we found stuff going back to the 70s, hiding in plain sight, the most clear path that I've ever seen of a condition and a result of a disease. And the thing that we felt that we feel is not, it doesn't predict a hundred percent of heart disease. Nothing does. Smoking doesn't predict a hundred percent of lung cancer. People get lung cancer without smoking. People smoke who don't get lung cancer, but boy, does it track well. The thing I'm about to tell you tracks about as well with heart disease. And it's a term many people won't know. It's called insulin resistance. It's a, mm -hmm. a condition that 88% of Americans have. And we know it as prediabetes, but they are the same thing. We're now starting to call prediabetes insulin resistance syndrome. But for all of you who say, what, what's insulin? What's insulin resistance? It's prediabetes. And there's an 88% chance if you're living in America and listening to this, you've got it because that's what the research shows, some, some degree. And what we saw in the research going back to the 70s was that insulin resistance shows up 10 years before heart disease, 10 years before your conventional doctor says, hey, your cholesterol is going up a little bit. Let's put you on a statin. Or 10 years before your do conventional doctor says, Mrs. Jones, you know, your A1C has been climbing. I think we need some metformin. We need some diabetes medication. You can see this 10 years ago. And insulin resistance is treatable, reversible, and preventable with diet and lifestyle. And that is, that is the findings of this book. It is what I've been most passionate about getting out in any interview opportunity I have. You can turn this around. You can prevent heart disease from happening. And by the way, Insulin resistance doesn't just lead to heart disease. Right. Not, it was very interesting because when I was doing, when, when COVID first came out, and I, I know this is a, a third rail we don't even want to touch, but I'm just going to mention one relatively non-controversial thing about it. So I was asked to do lots of videos. I put a million videos on YouTube. As the information was coming out, what should we do? What should we listen to? What looks to be true? And it was very clear that there was a series of underlying metabolic comorbidities and they were showing up in the vast majority of severe COVID cases. And that was called metabolic syndrome, which is prediabetes. It's what we're talking about. Hypertension, um, 
low H. These are the things that go with this: um, uh, high triglycerides, abdominal obesity. These are all the symptoms of prediabetes, and they were underlying the vast majority: hypertension, prediabetes, obesity, heart disease, Alzheimer's. These are all metabolic diseases with the same insulin resistance underneath. And then, what were the other ones that were big predictors of COVID: kidney, lung, and um, liver disease? And I thought to myself, "Wow, five out of eight are this thing yep. that we can do something about. And I started doing a little digging. And I, start, I spent a morning on PubMed, which is the National Institute of Health Library. It's accessible on everybody's computer. And I looked at the other three, liver disease, lung disease, kidney disease, straight line. Yep. Just put in insulin resistance and kidney disease, insulin resistance and lung disease, insulin resistance and liver disease, and you will be reading for hours. Yep. They are, it predicts every one of the chronic comorbidities of COVID, and nobody is talking about it. And don't even get me started, my head will literally explode. Well, no one's you, talking about it, just like no one is talking about the fact that 98.5 of people who died from COVID who had serious hospitalizations have vitamin D deficiencies. No one mentioned that. I haven't heard one health official mention that fact. You should uh, take a look back through my Instagram and my podcast, because that is the drum I have been beating this entire pandemic. And I came out day one of the pandemic, and I, based on the studies out of China at that time, by the time it hit our shores, I was like, you guys, this is metabolic dysfunction underlying. You can change this now. And the amount of hate I took, Johnny, from the world, from my profession, my own profession of naturopathic doctors turned on me and called me ableist, fatophobic. And I'm like, you guys, this is, I, I get called dangerous probably every day on Instagram. Someone's like, you're, I, I defined metabolic syndrome for people uh, how to diagnose it recently. And people were like, you're so dangerous. And I'm like, okay, well... This is all lifestyle, guys. So I'm with you 100%. <laughs> I have taken bullets. Wow. In a big way. So I, I am with you. And I have done whole podcast episodes on it where I try to lay it out, define it, and share the data. And people just don't want to hear it. And God forbid health officials come had come forth with this early on and saved. I mean, how many lives do you think could have been saved if we had just made public health efforts around this topic? We'll never know, but the, the estimates are pretty high, and, and it, it's been very discouraging to watch. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Like ma maddening and heartbreak. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. That's why I was so excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank <laughs> I was you like, so we much. are kindred spirits. <laughs> Thank you. That's very sweet. And, and to your point about the vitamin D thing, I don't make money on YouTube. I, I just never really pursued that as a money-making thing where you get, you know, you participate in the ad things. <clears throat> but I'm in the I'm in that ad participation thing just be, by virtue of the number of videos I have up there, but I don't really pay much attention to it. When I did a video on vitamin D having a role in building your immunity and possibly helping prevent reactions that would wind up putting you in the hospital, the video gets demonetized. It gets taken out of the pool in which you get paid for the ads because it's considered disinformation. Yep. 
Oh, yeah. We, my audience knows this. The week the pandemic started, my lawyer called me and said, don't say anything about prevention, treatment, or cure because the Department of Justice in Oregon is where I am, and the FDA are coming, and the FTC are coming down on practitioners for even mentioning vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. It's about to happen in California. There's a bill. By the way, I, I know you didn't want to go into this in with the policy. That's okay. If you live in Portland, I have to give a <laughs> shout out to of my heroes in this. Uh, who have, I think, one of the smartest podcasts I've ever listened to, and it started around the pandemic. It's called the Dark Horse Podcast. Yeah. Do, oh, you know them? Brett yeah. and Heather? So they're in Portland. Oh, uh, I didn't know they were in Portland. Oh, yeah. Brett, I know um, of them. Oh, yeah, it, it's just a brilliant, incredible um, podcast. And they, 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 too, were ostracized, lost their positions at Evergreen uh, College in the Midwest after 15 years, tenured, um, so they've written a lot about this and they talk a lot about this um, on their podcast with, with some very smart people who've also been deplatformed and kind of demonized. Yeah, I think they were the first to have Robert Malone on. That was the first time I saw Robert Malone interviewed was on the Dark Horse podcast. And, you know, since then, he's ha- been everywhere. But uh, yeah, they really have been telling the truth and seeking the truth. Actually, he has not been everywhere. And that, that is one of the here pulling (laughs) these these brilliant brilliant doctors like peter mccullough and robert malone who are literally just they're wearing the scarlet a they can't even get on television these guys have testified in front of the senate Mm -hmm. they're published in in peer-reviewed journals and oh no they're a bunch of quacks they're a bunch of agenda and i remember robert malone once saying you know he didn't say the word that I'm going to say, but but he said this. I'm paraphrasing, but he said he, he he was on an interview and he said, "Yeah, I know that they accuse me. I'm selling. So I'm trying to get publicity for myself." He said, "Dude, I'm 66 yeah. and I'm a grandfather and I have a horse farm. Yeah. You think I need this shit?" <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to just be left alone with my horses and my grandkids. I've got enough money to live, you know, really. And and if you hear him talk, he's just the grandfather doctor. You always wish you had as a family doctor, right? He just exudes that competence, calmness, wisdom. Him and Peter McCullough. So, so anyway, yes, uh, we, we went through a long uh, Alice in Wonderland hole about, but but it's sort of pertinent to what we're talking about with yes. cholesterol because what is misinformation? When I talk about statin drugs not being the only way to treat heart disease and that there are lifestyle things that you can do and that insulin resistance probably plays a bigger role in cholesterol, that's considered disinformation. Mm -hmm. If we continue down the road we have, we will eventually not even be able to have this discussion because it will be considered promoting statin hesitancy. Mm -hmm. How about that? Yeah, that's, I mean, they conditioned us to, you know, pray to the holy God of big pharma for so many decades. So when this all rolled out, it was just really easy to roll everybody right into that. You know, the brainwashing had already been done. Everyone says, oh, I can't, I can't believe how many people became brainwashed during COVID. I'm like, oh, no, that was done decades ago. They were conditioned already that their food choices, their lifestyle choices had absolutely no reflection of their overall health. Just take the pill. You'll be fine. And if you're not fine, it's your fault, you know? <laughs> so I'm with you. There's a book that I want to mention since we're talking good books. Um, you've probably read it called Prescribing by Numbers by Jeremy no, Green. But, 
I haven't read that one, but uh, well, the one that I'm real excited about right now is John Abramson's new book called um, Sickened, um, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare System and What We Can Do About It. He's from Harvard. I've known about him for 20 years, and, and that's I'm reading that, but I have a feeling the book you mentioned, I've seen it, is uh, there are several that kind of take this apart piece by piece. Yeah. Um, Marsha Angle, who was the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, does it get any more mainstream than that? The editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine wrote out this whole playbook that the Big Pharma does in 2006 in a book mm. called The Truth About the Drug Companies after editing the New England Journal of Medicine where she dealt with this. And the, the, the I forgot Catherine's last name, but the editor of Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, is quoted in the Abramson book saying, Here's the first principle. Anything that Big Pharma says is a lie. Don't believe one word they say. She's, that's the editor-in-chief of JAMA. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a little known uh, fact that if you are, and one of the reasons I chose not to become an MD and became an ND instead was because the MDs are you know, they have got to follow the standard of care. And this, like you mentioned briefly, this, the standard of care around, if, if high cholesterol shows up on a lab, they've got to prescribe a statin or their ass is on the line and their license is on the line. And it's kind of this unspoken thing that I had came to understand very early on. And so I choose, I chose to become a naturopathic physician. We don't have a standard of care. We just have to do best practices. You just have to, do, you just have to take care of people and keep them yeah. from dying. Not mess up and do anything too crazy. But don't kill anyone along the way. But that that's what I don't think patients understand. They say, I don't understand. I go to the doctor and I always get a pill. It's like, well, that's kind of their job. Like, unfortunately, that's why I chose not to go into allopathic medicine, because that's their job. And I don't think the audience at large understands that concept. So it's not always the doctors, the bad guy. It's like, hate, you know, hate, don't hate the player, hate the game kind of thing. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you totally. But I, I'm, I'm going to be optimistic and assume that your audience is not mostly, they wouldn't be listening to you if they swallowed that stuff hook, line, and sinker. They've got to have at least some doubts yeah. that that isn't the only model of health and wellness. I have a great audience. You will, you will, you'll find them to be quite, uh, they're, it's like an army. <laughs> I didn't build a following. I built an army of, oh, that's great, great. of truth. Uh, I already seekers. love them. This episode of the Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my store. If you're like me, you're tired of taking so many pills, especially when it comes to fish oil that often needs higher dosing to impact inflammation levels, and then you have to deal with the fishy burps. Not with my Omega-3 Fish Oil Ultra Mega OK. Ultra Mega OK features natural, enzymatically enhanced, maximal monoglyceride fish oil that has three times greater EPA and DHA absorption rate than to an equivalent dose of ethyl ester fish oil. Studies show that the starting dose for anti-inflammatory benefits for fish oil are around 3,000 milligrams a day, which can often mean taking three to six capsules a day or more of the competitor's fish oil. That same benefit can be obtained with one capsule of Ultra Omega OK due to its advanced absorption technology. Some other benefits of fish oil have been shown in studies to support cardiovascular health, support healthy mental function, support healthy glucose and insulin metabolism, and more. Ultra Omega OK formulas are made using proprietary maximal compositions containing monoglyceride, FO, with no additional ingredients, carriers, or excipients. 
Each fish gelatin soft gel is enteric coated, which means little to no fishy burps, and every batch of fish oil ensures the world's highest standards for purity, potency, and freshness. This fish oil is non-GMO, certified sustainable from a variety of small fish in Scandinavia, and antibiotic-free. Additionally, it's eco-friendly because the greater absorption of EPA and DHA ultimately means that fewer grams of fish oil are needed to be harvested for the same benefit. While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual recommendations, I can tell you how these products work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of the show can enjoy 10% off Ultra Omega OK by using the code Ultra Omega 10 in all capital letters over at my store. That's store.drtina.com. Again, that's store.drtina.com, D-R-T-Y-N-A. And yes, I did name it after a Soundgarden album for you diehard fans. You know who you are. I use this product every evening before bed, and it significantly improves my mood, outlook, and levels of discomfort. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code ultraomegaok 10 all one word, for 10% off. So I have a question. Let's talk because I don't want to keep your, you too long. Can we break down fats for a second? You know, fats, everybody's talking about seed oils. It's all the rage right now on the Instagram. And I don't think a lot of people understand it. And I, I think about it more old school like you do. So we break that yeah, down. So, so the seed oils, vegetable oil thing, I, I wrote a book in 2016 called Smart, Smart Fat. And I wrote it with a, a very good doctor named uh, MD named Stephen Masley, who people probably know from PBS because he's done a, a few specials on that. And, um, and we had a big argument about whether to call them vegetable oil or seed oils. And he correctly pointed out they're not fucking vegetable oils. <laughs> right. There's no broccoli oil. You know, they're, they're, they're from seeds, soybean and, and, and corn. And, and I said, that's true. But the whole world knows them as vegetable oils, and we're going to confuse everybody if we if we do this. So vegetable oils is the name we give to what are really seed oils. And they are very high in a particular essential fat called omega-6. So to understand why it's an awful recommendation to tell people to eat as much vegetable oil as possible, you have to understand omega-6s and omega-3s. These are two essential fats or fatty acids is the proper term and omega-6s um, and they need to be in balance and they both do important things in the body. There's been a huge movement like, oh, omega-6s are bad and they're terrible and don't eat any of them. They actually, you need both of those two, but you need them to be in balance and here's why. So omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. That means in their, the metabolic pathways that use, meta, that use omega-6s, which come from corn oil and safflower oil and sunflower oil and peanut oil and all the vegetable oils, those, those fats are pro-inflammatory, meaning that in the, in the pathways of metabolism in which they're processed, they produce little inflammatory compounds in our body. Omega-3s do the opposite. In the metabolism of omega-3s, which come from fish and flaxseed and, and uh, hemp seed, the metabolism of those produce compounds in the body that are anti-inflammatory. Now, every time I give this talk, people say, what do we need the inflammatory ones? Why don't you just eliminate the omega-6s? They're the bad guys. Except when you get sick, what happens? You get a fever. 
you have inflammatory cytokines. If you get a splinter, if you get a, a, an injury, like on your, on your leg, you get a, a splinter or a bee sting, what happens? The area swells up. Why does it do that? White blood cells surround the area. All of these inflammatory compounds come around trying to kill off microbes, trying to prevent an infection. So inflammation, a small amount of inflammation is part of the healing process, just like you get a temperature. That's part of the healing process. So we need some inflammation. So think of those guys, those omega-6s as an army. They're the inflammation army. We need them to be there. We don't want them running around all the time doing damage, but we, we need them. We also need a nice, strong anti-inflammatory because so many things in our lifestyle, in our food supply, the toxins that we breathe in the air, that we drink in the water cause inflammation. So we need a ready to fight inflammation army of omega-3s. Okay, so far so good. So let's say you're the government and you got to fund these two armies. You want to fund them equally. Maybe even give the anti-inflammatory a few more guns. Maybe give them a little more of the resources, but at least do it evenly, one-to-one. -one. What we are doing with our diet is we are consuming 16 times more inflammatory, pro-inflammatory omega-6s than anti-inflammatory omega-3s. The ratio is 16 to 1 in most of the Western world, and some studies show it's as high as 20 or 25 in some parts of the country. So you are, you, me, by our diet and by our lifestyle, are basically funding, putting all of our funds into inflammation and almost nothing into anti-inflammation. And that's basically the story of omega-6s and 3s. And since all of the omega-6s we get... 99% of the omega-6s we get are from these crappy seed oils, vegetable oils, these ones that are used in every baked good, they're used in every TV dinner, they're used in every processed food, they're used in cereal, you read them on the labels, it's partially hydrogenated soybean oil, so canola oil, all of, all of them, omega-6, omega-6, omega-6. And because of that, we are, even if we're not pouring it on our food or cooking with it, we are consuming about 16 times too much of mm -hmm. these omega-6. And that's why people um, like Kate Shanahan, uh, who wrote The Fat Burn Fix, went on Bill Maher and said there are two things in the American diet that are causing this metabolic um, uh, pandemic, and they are sugar and seed oils. And I stand behind that. Those are the two, I think, the two most dangerous categories of food in the American diet. Agreed. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> well done in six minutes. <laughs> I love it. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's so confusing to people because they, again, indoctrination, right? It's just for, for younger folks, you know, I'm 48. All we've been told. It's all we've been told since, yeah, I, was, been since told. I first nutrition class in 1990, whatever, 98, whatever it was, the, from the very, very beginning. It's like, hey, the best, don't eat saturated fat, eat vegetable oil. First of all, Saturated fat doesn't clog your arteries. I can, I can rattle off the studies by memory at this point. I've talked about them so many. I mean, starting with 2010 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. They looked at 300,000 patients. They've had meta-analysis of, uh, you know, of, of, of studies that have been done and, and pooled the people and looked, is there a relationship between statin? We don't care about the cholesterol. We care about the dying. Is there a relationship between eating saturated fat and getting more heart disease? And the answer, it's not ambiguous. The answer is no. Yeah. There is no 
causal relationship between those two things. And it's amazing how many doctors still that was I was two years into practice when that study came out. And I thought, hallelujah, here we are. I never thought I'd see the day. And to this day, I still have doctors come at me telling me saturated fat is evil. And I'm like, always, I just want to tell them to sit down and go home. (laughs) And by the way, the 2010 study was just the beginning. As you know, there's four or five since then. And Zoe Harcom, this wonderful student in England, she was and she did her PhD thesis on the subject of the discrepancy between the advice and the science. It was published. It was published in the BMG, the British Medical Journal. She's now Dr. Zoe Harcombe and and an outspoken critic of this stuff. And it's just the evidence isn't there. Saturated fat never did these things. It's a very natural fat. It's in our diet. We make it. We make it ourselves. Right. And, and it behaves differently depending on what else you eat it with. Uh, I mean, nobody's saying eat a ton of saturated fat and sugar, which is what the American diet is. That, that's not a good combo. Right. Especially, especially uh, beef or, or any kind of meat that's been processed. That saturated fat mixed with sugar is – and then add in the, the seed oils that have been fried and oxidized. and. But it's a bad combo. And I think part of the reason that this is so mind-boggling for so many people is that we're in information overload, number one. There's so much coming in, and we haven't really developed, and this is where Brett and Heather come back in, because their specialty is critical thinking. How do you think critically about this stuff? And when, when you think critically, there's nuance. There's saturated fat from a inhumanely raised pork that was fed antibiotics and steroids and grain and it's got all this stuff in there and there's saturated fat from grass-fed beef that has been humanely raised on pasture doesn't have a toxin in it because it was never given the animal was never given antibiotics steroids of bovine growth hormone any of that their fat is as pristine as the day is long and people have trouble making these kinds of distinctions. The ban on eating cholesterol, very interestingly, by the original people, the Ansel Keys, the people back in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that kind of cocked this whole thing up, they knew even then, the, the, the founders of this theory about like avoiding cholesterol, they knew that eating cholesterol didn't make any difference. It was cholesterol in the blood they were talking about. And they made the decision not to tell people that because it was too confusing. They had to make cholesterol either good or bad. So they couldn't say, well, you can eat it. You just shouldn't have high cholesterol in your blood. They could, too much of a distinction. Just it's bad stuff. So if an egg has cholesterol, you shouldn't eat the egg. Right. And there are people to this day who eat egg whites because they're afraid of eating cholesterol in eggs, which doesn't do anything to even the badly measured cholesterol. It doesn't do anything. Oh, the egg whites. I don't understand it. That's like t- taking the best part of the egg out of it. <laughs> it's it's a constant. And I, I it's so mind-blowing to me that you've been fighting this battle for so long and yet we are here we are still here right we are and now we're in this pandemic or it's i think the pandemic's over in my opinion but we're still in this and people just can't seem to get their mind around that the amount of pushback i got on the whole well how is what we eat going to have any impact on our outcomes with covid i mean that that oh my god that was such a battle for people that came at me and i'm like are you are we on the same planet like are we I, it's it's just been mind-boggling, but I'm I'm glad you still keep fighting the charge. And 
there are many of us picking up the torch. So we appreciate you. Well, is there any place that I can send everyone to find you? Because I'm sure everyone's going to be so excited now to be introduced to you if they haven't found you already. I'm on Instagram at, at Johnny Bowden. Just remember, no H and Johnny. And um, I write my column for Whole Foods, and there's lots of stuff online my, and my website. I, I, if I can do a shameless plug, yes. during the pandemic, I personally experimented with fasting for the first time. And um, I had known, as I'm sure you do, and you may even practice it, I had known about the benefits of fasting for a very long time, and I just didn't think I could do it. And, and then a couple of things happened in the pandemic. It was harder to get to the grocery store, whatever it was. I started just stocking up on the foods I should be eating, and um, I wound up eating less of them, and then my schedule changed, and I wound up playing tennis in the mornings, and I didn't eat, and I didn't have my first meal till one. All of a sudden, I said, I'm actually doing an intermittent fast here. I'm doing 16-8. Started reading up about it, started really immersing myself in the literature, and I became such a convert for this because it reverses insulin resistance, which is the thing I'm most concerned about. It's a wonderful treatment for that. It's a treatment for overweight, which is how I started my career at Equinox Fitness Clubs in the 90s as a weight loss coach and as a trainer getting people to get rid of belly fat. Well, fasting does that. So I, I actually, if you go to my website, johnnybowden.com, no H in Johnny, there is a free course called an introduction to intermittent fasting um it's a five-part challenge download it just put your email in they'll send it to you and that's what i spent a lot of time during the pandemic on i've become a very very big promoter of intermittent fasting together with a lower carbohydrate diet um, to reverse most of these metabolic conditions I love that. I get a lot of questions about intermittent fasting. So I think this is going to be a great resource for everybody. Yeah, it's really simple. It. makes it really understandable. That's kind of the, that's my strength is to just break this down so that anyone can understand it. And I think that's what we did in that, in that course. And um, so I'm, awesome. I'm a big believer in that also as something in the armory to fight inflammation, uh, de- to help with detoxification, to help with energy, to help with mental clarity and, and to, you know, to just have a healthier life. I think that's a very, very big tool that, Absolutely. that I didn't know about a few years ago. I think it's a wonderful resource that you've made available. So I, we will put that on the show notes and your, U- your YouTube as well. Sounds like. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That sounds like we got to get over there. So I'll, we'll add all that to the show notes so everybody can find you. Thank you. Oh, well, this has been such a pleasure. Oh, uh, have me back. I mean, we have so much more we could talk Yes. About. <laughs> I was just going to say, can you come back on? <laughs> yes. <laughs> can we have a regular Johnny Bowden session? I, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm a regular on a show called One Life Radio for seven years. It broadcasts in Texas and it broadcasts um, somewhere in California, not where I live. And it's a terrestrial radio station. And it started with me going on and doing an appearance. I said, you want to come back next month? And I've been doing it every month for over seven years now and it happened out of an appearance like this so yeah i'm I'm, sure i love it okay well we will get you back on the schedule then well thank you so much again for making the time thank you thank you so much yes you are a gift to the world johnny thank you i (laughs) feel the same way about you thank you thanks for listening to the dr tina show Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Gilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. 
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.